Hey awesome people, welcome to episode 14 of the second season of Lantern. We're a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Tim Losurdo, founding director of Democracy in Colour, Australia's first national racial justice advocacy organisation led by people of colour. Together, we discuss the importance of political advocacy and campaigning, how democracy in colour is working to dismantle structural racism, and how to be a strong ally for a number of impacted communities. Hope you enjoy this one. Hello, thanks for having me. My name is Tim. I currently work at Democracy in Colour, which is Australia's first national racial and economic justice campaigning organisation led by people of colour, led by impacted communities. I'm really passionate about people-driven change, the ability of everyday people to close the gap between the world we have and the world most people everywhere want, a world that is just, that's fair, that's equal, a world where the inherent worth and dignity and value of everybody is recognised and respected. How did that passion come about? I think it came about when I was growing up. I think, you know, I'm a person of colour myself. My mum is Chinese, my dad's Italian. And I was born in Brisbane, so the story of my life is your quintessential, you know, example of Australian multiculturalism. Uh, and I grew up hearing the stories my parents would tell me about their experiences of racism. When my dad was growing up, it was fashionable to bully Italians. He got bullied because of the type of food he brought to school, because his parents couldn't speak English. I grew up hearing my mum share the stories of racism she experienced, the stereotypes that come with being Chinese, the story get racially abused in public. Uh, and then I started experiencing it as I got into high school. You know, your first name becomes Chink, go back to where you came from, became the weekly mantra of the playground. Yeah, my house got egged a couple of times, fruit was thrown at me from passing by cars. Uh, a whole number of different examples that showed me very early on that people were prepared to treat me differently based off the colour of my skin. Uh, and there are a number of other things that were happening at that time that showed me that actually, like, I'd experienced a particular type of pain and that... Not everybody knew what that felt like, but a number of experiences showed me that like, I felt like everybody knew what it felt like to be alone. Like Everybody knew what it felt like to have their back against the wall and feel like the whole world was against them. And I started to understand that you know, injustice tends to manifest itself in multiple different forms. You know, I had a friend who felt like he couldn't be himself because he liked other guys. I had a friend who wrestled with her reflection every time she looked into the mirror because she felt her body image didn't conform to society's expectations of women. So it became pretty clear to me early on that we live in a world uh, where the majority of us experience some form of pain based off some form of our identity. And you know, a lot of our experiences are characterised by loneliness and a lot of our experiences are characterised by these very small but incessant attacks on our dignity. And I just thought that... You know, it wasn't like one experience, but it was a n number of experiences over time. I thought that, that we could do better, you know, like as a society, we could do better. I was interested in looking at what did that look like? What did it look like to build a society where we were interested in maximising human development, you know, human potential over profit? What did that look like? Um, what did it look like to build a society where everyone had an opportunity to thrive, not just survive, but thrive? On that note, do you want to tell us a little bit about democracy and culture? Sure. And what that's about? So like I mentioned before, it's a national racial and economic justice organisation led by people of colour. Uh, we do two main pieces of work. So the first piece of work we do is campaigning around structural racism and the second piece of work we do is a lot of leadership development, capacity building, training work to strengthen the political voice of people of colour. 
We were formed just over a year ago, so we're a startup, and we were formed because we saw three core gaps in the anti-racism space. The first gap being that most of the work that happens in this space is service delivery, education, welfare type work. And that work's obviously critically important, but social change is an ecosystem, and we saw a core actor that was missing was the political advocacy stuff, was the campaigning work. So we wanted to set up a campaigning outfit. That was the first gap. The second gap was that this is a predominantly white sector and we thought it was important that we started a new racial justice organisation that was actually led by people who experience racial injustice. Uh, and the third gap was that we wanted to take more of a structural approach to, uh, to tackling racism, that we didn't just want to see racism as this isolated, siloed issue over in the corner, but see it as a symptom of a broader, broken system that seeks to capitalise on the pain it creates to weaponise our differences and to use communities of colour as this convenient scapegoat so that we're shouting at each other and pointing the finger of blame at each other instead of the broken rules. Do you mind walking us through, say, what a typical campaign would look like? Yeah, yeah sure. I can talk about the one we've just finished, the Victorian election campaign. So during the Victorian election campaign and really for the last three years, if not more, there's been a really toxic uh, narrative around law and order in Victoria, quite a racist one. It's a racialised crime panic in essence. You know, Victoria has the second lowest youth offence rate in the country. Victoria has the second lowest offence rate in the country. And ABS crime data shows that Victoria has never been safer than it, than it has been in the last 10 years. That crime rates have been on a steady decline for the last 10 years. And that the vast majority of offenders in Victoria are Australian-born and older than 25. And yet none of that matters because for some elements of the tabloid media and for some politicians, particularly within the Liberal Party, they've been pushing a racialised uh, law and order narrative, a racialised crime panic to basically create fear, to divide our communities, to divide a classic divide and conquer tactic. And they're doing this because they know it's an age-old tactic and it's an old tactic because it's an effective one. They're doing this because a fearful community is one that is more likely to vote for um, authoritarian and reactionary candidates. It's one that's more likely to vote for punitive policies. Uh, and that's sort of what we've seen over the last three years, that we've seen both sides of politics, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, buy into this narrative. Victoria's never been safer than it's been in the last 10 years, and yet Daniel Andrews, our Premier, is spending hundreds of millions of dollars in new prisons. He's spent $2 billion recruiting new police. It's the biggest rec police recruitment drive in Victorian history. Former opposition leader, Matthew Guy, put out a proposal to put police in schools with high people of colour. Uh, they're both proposed uh, very punitive changes to bail um, sentencing and parole laws. You know, Victoria has the toughest bail laws in the country now. They put mandatory sentencing in, and in essence, reducing the discretion of judges to take into consideration uh, the unique circumstances of an offender. A whole variety of different things that show that, you know, a narrative isn't just words, not just on the, the front pages of the Herald Sun or what a politician is saying. It, it actively shapes policy uh, and it shapes people's everyday experiences. You know, community legal centres over the last year have reported a 50% increase in racial abuse from the communities that they work with. And that would be in large part uh, due to, to the racialised narrative around law and order, around crime. And we know, you know, research has been done, especially by uh, the Flemington-Kensington Community Legal Centre, that's shown that African communities, you're an African young person, you're at least 2.4 times more likely to be stopped by police than a non-African young person. So what does like $2 billion worth of new police mean for that community? So that was the context we were working in. 
that uh, it was pretty clear that we've got an issue here, that it was a defining issue. The last state election was run on law and order. That was the, the, the thing that was front and centre of particularly the, the Liberals' campaign. You know, their whole slogan was get back in control. Uh, they were pushing law and order. They were pushing you know, population control. There was an upcoming opportunity in the state election to try and demonstrate to all sides of politics that you know, playing the politics of fear, that using our communities as a convenient scapegoat uh, will have electoral repercussions. And we wanted to show that. So that's why we decided to work on that campaign. We focused specifically on Frankston, which is Victoria's most marginal electorate, or it was before the wipeouts um, a, few, <laughs> yeah. a few weeks ago. And it was an electorate where the Liberal candidate was Michael Lamb, who is the current station commander at the Victorian, uh, sorry, at the Frankston um, Police Station. He's been a police officer for the last 30 years. So you can't get any more law and order than, than putting a, you know, a, a police officer of 30 years yeah. in that seat, especially with the kind of narrative they were pushing there and his views around race and crime and the link between, or the supposed link between race and crime were quite horrific. So the Liberals were pushing law and order statewide, was it? campaign thing, but they were especially pushing it in the sandbelt seats, these seats that they had to win, and Frankston was one of them. So we decided that that would be our target electorate, that we'd create and run a field campaign, basically doing a lot of voter contact work, doing lots of door knocking, lots of phone banking, lots of stores, lots of visibility events, stunts, actions, basically having hundreds of conversations with Frankston residents, these crucial uh, marginal seat voters. You know, Frankston was only one in the last state election, one before. Uh, a few weeks ago in 2014, uh, by about 160 votes, just over 160 votes, extraordinarily marginal. So we knew that every conversation we, was, we were having uh, at the door, on the phone, wherever it was, at a stall, in a market, had the potential to shift the outcome of this electorate. And it was absolutely essential for the Liberal Party to win this electorate if they were going to win uh, the election. It was considered to be a sort of bellwether seat, that it would provide an indication of how the broader campaign was going because that was like the purest manifestation of their campaign, yeah. basically Frankston and their law and order stuff. So we were having conversations at the door, a whole variety of different places around the law and order narrative, talking to folks about how it was a confected panic and how it was confected in a way to create fear, to weaponise our differences, to divide our communities and to do so in a way to distract us from the issues that really matter. You know, investment in education, healthcare, jobs, you know, investment in local projects and infrastructure, uh, that, those sorts of things. And that was a narrative that really resonated. We had uh, the vast majority of conversations we had were very positive. It was in a community that's reasonably conservative, um, that's very white. It's one of the most white communities you can find, sort of Melbourne area. And uh, this was when, you know, people of colour were doing it. You know, we had about 50% uh, allies, 50% people of colour doing this campaign. And so we expected, and you would have expected, that there would have been difficult conversations, but they ended up being quite positive and quite reaffirming, really, of the potential of people to see through the cynical politics that's been pushed before us, um, the politics of fear, of hate, of division, if we have the right narrative that recognises that there are structural ills in place here, that there are people who benefit off those, and those people want us to not look at that by directing our anger at each other, at our neighbours. And then reflecting back on that campaign, how did you track the impact? Obviously, there was a, a huge swing in terms of the election as a whole. And uh, so the overarching result, there was obviously a very clear, comprehensive and thorough rejection of the Liberals' racist law and order agenda. 
In terms of some of the more granular ways of how we might measure impact, you know, we, we record every interaction we had. So we had around, we made around 4,000 calls to, to marginal seat voters, all in the area of Frankston. Now remember this is a seat where it was last one on a margin of just over 160. So every call we made, you know, had the potential to be um, an election shifting, um, a result shifting call. We made hundreds of door knocks, you know, had, had these mass door knocks where we'd go out and do all these door knocks. Um, we did a couple of community barbecues, we did stalls, we did a lot of leafleting. primary way of, of sort of measuring the impact of those conversations we had, whether it was at the door or the phone or a whole variety of other areas, uh, was the conversion rate of people, you know, conversation to, to pledge, which was quite high. We had about, you know, of the people we actually talked to, you know, it ended up being about 75 to 80% of those who actually uh, signed the pledge, which is very, very high. Usually it's, 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 it's around 20 to 30%. Right. With advocating for people of colour in Indigenous communities, I think this is not only for people who you know, classify themselves as Caucasian, they're not, not a PRC, but even people of colour who are advocating for issues outside of their community. In terms of feeling comfortable in that space and adjusting to that, how do you think people should go about that? Or if they're feeling a bit of an imposter syndrome, for example? So I think the question's a bit different depending on whether you're talking about white folk or people of colour were like organising a community that's not their own. It'd be good to explore both. Yeah. yeah. So I think the uh, PNC organising communities are not their own. I think the first thing about that is that like if you're not Indigenous and you're a settler on the unceded lands, recognise that no matter what issue we're talking about, like Indigenous folk are, are affected first and they're affected hardest, basically on every single issue. The very manifestation of white supremacy in this country and, and structural racism in this country is... The, this country's history and ongoing treatment of Indigenous people. You know, the fact that we incarcerate the highest number of Indigenous people on the planet, that the fastest growing incarcerated group in this country is Indigenous women, that there's a second stolen generation happening right now, and Indigenous kids are 10 times more likely to be taken into out-of-home care than non-Indigenous kids, that Indigenous people have a life expectancy that's 10 years less on average than non-Indigenous people, and that there have been hundreds of, of deaths in custody, around 400 black deaths in custody since there was a Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in 1991. The majority of the recommendations from that report have not been um, implemented. And we've seen a whole slew of exposés of police brutality in the community, but also in, in prisons, especially in youth detention centres. Dondale was a great example, or a bad example, uh, last year, but there have been plenty uh, of those happening around the country um, where we're seeing Indigenous kids, children, being tear-gassed, being tied up, spit-hooded, um, having their, their, their rights ignored and disregarded, having their dignity, their humanity ignored and eroded. Uh, so I think that's the first thing to remember. As a person of colour on this country, that we're um, settlers still, and that ultimately it's not racial justice if it doesn't centre the sovereignty and self-determination of First Nations people. So that just needs to be the f at the forefront of all of your racial justice organising and working in solidarity with First Nations people, listening and learning from those folks, amplifying their voices where possible, etc. And then there's organising within communities of colour uh, itself. And I think then, again, there's a recognition that structural racism revolves around anti-blackness and that got non-black PSC, like myself, 
and you've got black pet seed and brown pet seed. Uh, so I think, I think they're, they're the, the main things, like to, to acknowledge the nuance, to, to centre First Nations solidarity, self-determination and sovereignty in all of your work, to work in solidarity with those folks, to use your position of relative privilege um, to uh, create space, to give resources to show up you know, physically with resources, etc., your voice, and to amplify their voice. In terms of white folk being allies to communities of colour and Indigenous folk more generally, I think it's, again, similar principles, being a good ally of, like, at the end of the day, you know, centering the objective of justice, you know, of creating a society that affords equal opportunity to everyone, that honours the dignity and humanity of everyone, irrespective of your skin colour, your class, your ability, your, you know, sexuality, gender, etc., and you're doing that in a way that doesn't centre yourself, you know, doesn't position you as the hero or the white saviour and the person of colour as this, you know, this, this victim that needs saving. But you're doing it in a way that, that like, honours and recognises their resilience, their ongoing resilience, and it has been, you know, resilience for decades and for Indigenous folk for centuries. You're doing it in that way. You're doing it in a way that uh, is, like, you know, real solidarity. It's not just saying the words. It's not just about building social capital, you know, saying stuff because you're socially obligated to say it, doing the acknowledgement of country because you have to, but it's about actually showing up, it's, you know, donating money, it's utilising your networks, it's connecting people, it's showing up at rallies, lending your voice, it's stepping back at the right time, it's giving an opportunity you had to someone else. And, and it's calling out or calling in when you see some microaggression or whatever, you know, happen in front of a, community, a person of colour as a colleague or a friend and doing it there, you know, standing up for them so that they don't have to do it. The person mm. who's actually impacted doesn't mm. have to do it. So I think it's a whole variety of different things. It can't really be packaged in one neat sentence. But I think it does revolve around the idea of, like, I think there's a, there's a question of authenticity. You know, there's a lot of solidarity that is superficial. Uh, there's a lot of allyship that's superficial that is definitely concerned with um, aesthetics, uh, and that's concerned with using an issue to build, in essence, social capital, yeah. to look like a certain person, yeah. type of person, yeah. and to embody an identity as opposed to actually working towards justice. So yeah. there's that approach, or there's the approach where you're actually interested in breaking down white supremacy. You're actually interested in building a just world yeah. where everyone can thrive. And I think if that is your, if you have that as your, your centre you know, your North Star, then everything else will generally fall into place. You know, you'll do all the other things because you'll work it out, you'll do your own research, you'll do your own education because you'll be genuinely interested in that because you genuinely want things to change as opposed to the other one where you just want to be seen to be wanting things to change. I'm interested in, in this regard in terms of particularly people in a position of privilege, being aware of that privilege and then particularly if you're trying to ally against something like taking down white supremacy often means giving up some of the advantages that you've had and privileges that you've gotten as a result of that. Do you think that comes from an experience that people have and it comes from a sense of people of colour having to share their story and sharing perspectives of what they've gone through? Or is it something that has to be more values-based that comes from someone's inherent moral compass? I guess that's getting at who are the people that we're trying to talk to in this sense? Yeah. I, I'd say the two are connected, that um, people of colour sharing their stories is uh, a form of, of it definitely revolves around 
engaging with people's values as opposed to just sharing facts around like racism or whatever, which we know doesn't persuade. You know, there's a whole movement of climate denialists out there that shows that facts aren't persuasive. They're obviously useful, but they're not necessarily the most effective persuasive tool. Uh, in terms of how you get people to do that, I mean, I wouldn't... I think, you know, when you're used to, I guess, a system of oppression, then like equality, you know, there's that common saying that equality feels like oppression, right? Because you're used to the benefits of that system. And so when it's made equal, you feel like you've been oppressed. Yeah. Um, there's that common saying. But I think that's, that's true to a certain extent. But I also think it's true that we are all, you know, we all have the quality of our lives eroded by white supremacy like we are all affected negatively by it just like you know the patriarchy you know men and women are negatively impacted by that women obviously more 10 times more but this idea of like toxic masculinity of shaping you know i can't even i can't even grapple with how much you know damage that's done to the psyche of like how many men around the country that they have to feel like they have to act in a certain way, they have to be a certain way that they can't, you know, engage with their emotions or they can't do certain things, they can't be certain people, they can't dress. So women are being killed by the patriarchy, so it's 100% a whole lot worse for them. But the point I'm trying to make is that our society is, as a whole is a victim of the patriarchy. And I'd say the same thing about white supremacy. Our society as a whole is a victim of that, including white people. Now, POC and Indigenous folk, again, to reiterate, are obviously, especially Indigenous people, experience the impacts of that far more than white people do. But I would argue, again, that white people are not served by white supremacy mm. uh, in terms of a whole variety of different ways. I think it goes to, you know... The fact that white supremacy is a, is a key way that like, predatory capitalism is upheld, that we've got a system that, again, works very well for a tiny minority at the perpetual expense of everyone else, and the only way that operates, the only way that doesn't crumble mm. under the stress it creates is by convincing the people it's screwing over that they're actually being screwed over by their neighbour that doesn't look like them, that believes in a different God, that you know, has different cultural practices. It does that through these fear campaigns, it does this through these you know, divide and conquer tech, tactics and strategies. And that's a way that you know, white supremacy doesn't, doesn't serve anyone, mm. right? It's, it's, it's stopping us from actually talking about the root causes of a number of the challenges we're talking about. You know, instead of talking about negative gearing and the capital gains tax, you know, concession, um, with the housing affordability crisis, or instead of talking about long-term strategic investment in infrastructure to address congestion, we're talking about migrants, you know, uh, we're talking about immigration. That is something that doesn't serve anyone. And I'd say from another level that I think there's a, a huge question around, you know, our, our identity uh, as a country and our values base as people. Now, I haven't thought about this enough, so I'm not sure yeah. exactly where sure. it's going to go, but... You know, I think there's a great example every January 26th, every Invasion Day, where we have this absurd national debate around the changing of that date. You know, some people want to abolish it, some people want to change it, etc. And it's an ahistorical debate, right? It doesn't recognise that the idea of a national celebration hasn't always been on January 26th to begin with. Actually, it's a reasonably recent concept. Uh, and yet we're so sensitive about that. And I think it just is, is a manifestation of 
just such a confused and damaged psyche that we have as a country. Mm. And the same thing when, you know, Harper, that eight-year-old girl who earlier this year uh, refused to stand uh, up for the anthem in a school assembly and called, you know, the whole country went into meltdown. You know, there were ministers or politicians, there were, you know, front uh, newspapers, TV commentators, etc., talking about Harper, talking about this eight-year-old girl, uh, calling for to be punished, all of these different things, mm. because she had rightly so pointed out the hypocrisy in our anthem and our own hypocrisy in our actions versus the values we profess to have. Uh, so I think these reactions are really indicative that this country is just like so confused, so lacking in an, in an overarching national identity, uh, and just so like... Um, challenged, you know, traumatised in a way. You know, you could, if you look at the values and the identity that this country professes to have, one of mateship, of the fair go, of you know, quality, you know, the idea of the Australian dream. You, know, you work hard, you can achieve your dream. You can get a house, you can get a car, etc., have a family. But it's just like so absurdly not true. And we all know that, right? We know what's happening in Madison Nauru. It's not a secret. We know that we're you know, kids are self-harming, they're being abused in our name, that we voted for this. We know what's happening with Indigenous folk. We know there are deaths in custody. We know there are, you know, abuses being uh, committed, prisons. Uh, we know this has been happening for centuries. We know that kids have been stolen, you know. We know all of this. And then I think there's this extraordinary, you know, challenge in reconciling what's happening with these values that we say we profess and this people that we say we are and how contradictory the two are and mm. I think that's just like really down you just can't exist like that right mm. you can't you know it's this this you just you can't exist like that where you think you're one thing you deeply believe it in fact mm. like your identity revolves around that being the truth mm. like a lot of people are proud of being Australian they're proud of this larrikin attitude mm. and those same people know what's happening it's, it's not it's not a myth it's not a mystery mm. um, and so it's just ex the amount of like internal confusion and like pain that is be causing, probably on an unconscious level, you know that that's also something that I think we're all suffering from. Uh, and again, that doesn't serve any of us. A few people, maybe a lot of people in Australia, might have heard just if you took those couple of minutes and played it back to them, they probably couldn't even finish the whole thing. Or they might hear terms like toxic masculinity. Um, predatory capitalism and call bullshit on everything. Do we still need to engage those people? Because they seem like they're still a fair size of the population. Well, they're a loud size of the population. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a large size. Right. Uh, in terms of whether you need to engage them, I mean, I think it does become clear when someone is not worthy of that, just not worth it, you know? Like the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, the Pauline Hansons, the George Christensons, the Peter Duttons. I think it's actually reasonably obvious when that's the case. It's the elites, you know, those people who benefit off, who know exactly what they're doing. These people are not idiots. They're very smart. They're savvy political operatives uh, and they know what they're doing. They know they're creating fear for political purposes. They know they're creating fear to suit their own and pursue, promote their own agenda. And... Uh, those people should be condemned. Like, it's just the worst form of politics. You know, it's, it's cynical, it's disgust. it's just like it appeals to the worst in us, the very, very worst in us. It's no way. You know, you take that to its logical conclusion and, and where do you get? You get United States, right, right now. You get Britain, you could argue, again, right now, or parts of Europe right now, Brazil, 
some parts of Australia too, you get like uh, an insular, you know, self-hating people that's fearful of everyone that's inwards looking, mm. that's obsessed with the past. Those people, which I'd say as a, a small minority, they're probably not worth engaging. The people who might vote One Nation, for example, I'd say that they are worth engaging. Depends who is engaging those people, you know, who the onus, who the labour of engaging those people yeah. rests with, yeah. uh, and hopefully that's with allies who are stepping up to take that on. Uh, but I'd say that they're, they're worth engaging. I'd say like, that these are folk who, again, have either suffered from a system that doesn't work for them or is it the perception that they have, they, they feel like they have. And probably for them, whether they actually are or whether they just feel they are, it's the same thing. You know, there was an Ipsos survey last year that showed that two-thirds of Australians feel like the economy is rigged towards the rich and powerful. You know, I don't, I don't think you can separate racial justice from economic justice. I don't think you can separate the fact that, like, racism and race are used to perpetuate um, capitalism uh, and that we have a system that the sole commitment is, is profit, you know, the pursuit of profit over everything, over life itself, where we've created extraordinary wealth over the last year, you know, over the last... You know, couple of decades and where that wealth has gone to a few people you know the global economy has grown by about 380 percent since 1980 right now we've got about eight eight people who own the same wealth as half the world eight men eight billionaires own the same wealth as about 3.6 billion people you look at australia which is we're one of the the richest countries in the world at the richest time in human history we're well into our 27th year of consecutive economic growth uh, and yet income inequality in this country is at 70-year highs. The top 1% in this country own more wealth than the bottom 70%. There are 100,000 Australians who are homeless. There are 2.9 million Australians who live below the poverty line. Wage growth is at record lows. Uh, corporate profits, record highs. Um, people look at this uh, and they know something's wrong. Consciously or unconsciously, they know something's wrong. Mm. And they're looking for an answer. These people are the One Nation voters. You know, they're, they're, they're everyday Australians. They're, they're out there, they're looking at stuff, they're looking at a system that doesn't work for them, that's never worked for them. They're looking at politicians who don't speak for them, have never spoken for them, and they're trying to look for an answer. And we've got, uh, you know, a left progressive movement that hasn't really recognised that pain, that hasn't recognised that there's something structurally wrong here, that actually like, the economic system is broken, it's fundamentally broken, the rules are fundamentally broken, and so we're not offering solutions to that. And politics abhors a vacuum. And so who has come in to fill that is, you know, the people like Pauline Henson who are saying there is a problem and who are recognising that pain. And they're saying that the answer to that problem is migrants, it's people of colour, it's Indigenous folk. Um, so I think there's a powerful opportunity to build a really cross-cutting uh, and powerful movement of people across a whole variety of different issues and communities by engaging people who have been the victims, uh, and, and to a certain extent we all have been, some more than others, of predatory capitalism, um, saying that the system is wrong, yeah. offering an alternative, you know, an inspiring alternative of what, what could it look like to live in an economy where, you know, everybody has access to education, to healthcare, you know, to, to a meaningful job where everybody has access to a house, to affordable, clean energy, um, where nobody lives in poverty, you know, where our safety net is indexed to um, the cost of living. We can have a really inspiring conversation around that, bring people together around that, around a positive vision, you know, not just fighting against something, but fighting for something, mm. for the world we actually want to live in, that we've wanted to live in since we were born, and that we want our children to inherit. I think that's the potential of 
not just the people you know we're talking about now, the one nation votes, etc., but the potential of like a, a conversation that can engage a, a large number of Australians, a large number of people, and build a really powerful cross-cutting movement. Curious why you've kind of chosen to go down the advocacy path, perhaps than say even get into politics yourself. Well, I deeply believe that social change is an ecosystem and that we need a whole variety of actors playing their role. It's not one, and, and parliamentary politics is one, uh, one avenue, and I believe that we need good progressive people in parliament, obviously, but I believe that my interests and my energy is better spent in the, in the community because fundamentally I believe that, like I've said, the system is broken, uh, and politicians play by rules that are set by others. They're set by the media, they're set by big business, they're set by lobby groups. They're sometimes, but very rarely, set by community, set by donors, set by internal party power brokers, etc. Uh, so, you know, very rarely uh, do I think you get to sort of prosecute your own agenda. You know, Malcolm Turnbull is a perfect example of that. A uh, big believer in, in a republic, did jack shit. Uh, you know, hypothetically, if you took a linear view of power, then you would assume that Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, was the most powerful political position in the country. Evidently, he was not. You know, on the three biggest issues he cared about, the Republic, climate change, marriage equality. The Republic did nothing on it over his time as Prime Minister. Marriage equality took the most roundabout route to get there, the delaying route, a tactic that was created by the far right of his party that caused extraordinary pain, trauma, to LGBTQIA plus communities and climate change. He didn't just do nothing. He floated proposals that were, you know, uh, potentially were, were going to invest in, in, in new coal and new fossil fuel projects. So, you know, I think Malcolm Turnbull is a great example that power is not linear. Um, it's actually like much more nuanced and complex than that. And actually, like you'd argue that maybe Peter Dutton was the most powerful person or one of the more powerful than, mm. than Malcolm Turnbull. Maybe like some of the power brokers, you know, the, the, the leading power brokers on the right of the Liberal Party were more powerful than Turnbull. Maybe some of the big donors, you know, the Gina Reinhardt's were more powerful. Maybe the media folk, you know, the people who ran the Herald Sun, the Australian, the Murdochs, etc., were more powerful than, than Malcolm Turnbull. So if you take a nuanced understanding of power, then you recognise that, you know, parliamentary politics is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Uh, and, you know, it's a little bit, it's very common, you know, when, when you see someone who's young, especially if they're young, they're articulate, they're, they're interested in politics, then someone will inevitably say you should run for, for parliamentary office. Actually, probably not the best use of that person's talent. Right. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Yeah. Uh, and it definitely shouldn't be the default. So, uh, going back to the original question, you know, I believe the system's broken. I don't think, you know, politicians need to be given the political licence to act. And to act in the way that I think they need to act is going to ex require extraordinary license. Mm. I believe that we need to, in, in a sense, upend capitalism, that we need to bring in a new economic system that have people at its core, that has an equilibrium between people and planet, that revolves around you know, the maximisation of happiness, of human potential instead of profit, instead of the accumulation of wealth and materials and uh, the consumption of stuff. In order to do that... Yeah and all of the different policy levers that that requires and that manifests as, 
uh, would require extraordinary political capital and would only happen when the community gives the, them the licence to do that. When they create the space and not just create the space, but they demand that their representatives do that. And that means organising in communities. It means creating the, the will uh, and the appetite for that in communities. It means um, having conversations. It means, you know, running trainings, building environments that um, show people their own intrinsic power. It means creating new leaders that do the same. Same and do the same to, as we exponentially grow until we get to a level, you know, and build a, a movement where we have the power to demand um, things like, uh, you know, a universal basic income, where we have the power to demand free education. Do you have any advice or thoughts on if a young person is trying to work out what kind of path they want to follow in terms of making a difference, how they should go about that? Because you seem to have found your home in kind of advocacy work. Going back to this idea that social change is an ecosystem, that you've got a whole variety of roles that need to be played, whether it's insider stuff, you know, you're working for the government, you're working uh, as a public servant, you're working in a business, a social enterprise, whatever, uh, whether it's uh, more of the outsider stuff, more of the structural change, critique stuff, you know, campaigning, or organising, whether it's locking on, you know, doing direct action, all of it has a role. I think it's just about working out what best suits your interests, what best suits your own personal theory of change and what best suits your own skill set or where you'd like to grow. Uh, and that's not really a question, you know, that, that would be quite nuanced uh, and it's not a, not a question I can answer. But I think that's the question you should ask yourself. And I think the one thing that is probably consistent, at least for me, is focus, is a systems lens, is a focus on root causes, that we're all interested in um, a whole variety of different issues and we're interested in solving those issues. We're interested in having impact on them. And if we're genuinely interested in that uh, and not just in band-aid solutions, then we need to be talking about our economic system. We need to be talking about predatory capitalism because at the end of the day, there are a whole variety of issues, whether it's climate change, labour rights abuses, racism, environmental destruction, etc. These are just manifestations of the same problem uh, and that is capitalism. Are there any books or films you'd recommend um, to young people and make a difference? I'd recommend uh, the book uh, Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky. It's a, a seminal book on, on community organising uh, done by an American organiser who's uh, um, not here anymore. And, uh, can't remember when he was active. Uh, anyway, it's a great book. Uh, uh, you know, both theoretical and practical on how do you do real organising work, how do you do activism work. And if you're interested in, in sort of social movement theory and social movement roles, you can also read, uh, I think it's called The Movement Action Plan by Bill Moyer, who was the sort of theorist who created this, who did a lot of research on a whole variety of different social movements. And he, and he identified that there were sort of, I think there were nine stages that a social movement typically goes through. And he also identified four sort of main roles or social movement actors played various parts depending on what stage of that social movement you're in. So that could also help with uh, sort of uh, your own thinking around where you want to play your part. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Thanks Brilliant. So much, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.